0: Hello and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear, bringing you the story and answering your questions.
1: No fake news, no alternative facts.
2: Just history, all the time. Hi there, and welcome to Holly History.
0: We discuss what you want to hear. Uh, Mr. DeMauro here today, and I'm joined by Mr. Christman, Mr. Ritz, and possibly in and out, Mr. Hennard, who is technically on the admin team now, but um, still an honorary member of Holly History, always will be. Today, we're going to do something. We're back to our old roundtable style. We haven't done a show like this um, since back in the spring, our traditional roundtable. We've been coming out a lot of shorts and things like that. But um, sometimes things we do in the classroom get us kind of into a a question that we like to discuss with each other. And with our seventh graders, we've been examining um, over 17 different primary and secondary sources. Uh, The overarching, exciting, or essential question, um, as it's called in other classrooms, what are our roots made of? What is our background as a country? What, are, what, what makes us who we are? Um, and so what's in our own roots? With kind of colonial history in mind, because that's where we're gonna go with mostly is colonial history here, because that's the, the sources the seventh graders have been examining. Um, so before we kind of get started, and I start bringing the other people in here, um, I just want to read the list of 31 different things that the seventh graders came up with. Now. They, they came up with groups of people and they also came up with adjectives to describe what we're made of. So I'm just gonna go right in order here. Um, immigrant, African, English, Native American, Spanish, French, Dutch, violence, disease, war, greed, economics, racism, death, slavery, power, toleration, freedom, religion, trade, adventure, a new start, Cooperation, terror, brave, toughness, hope—a hope to be better. Christianity, land, and mystery. So, a pretty big list, not all encompassing. There's obviously, you know, they're we're, they're middle schoolers, and no one's perfect, obviously. So, just to kind of get a start, is there? Um, so, again, adjectives and groups of people, and you can look at the actual tree that we made on our Twitter account at, Holly, at History Holly. If you want to check that out, we'll be making a poster soon, too, as well. So we're still in the process of completing that tree. It's not a finished product yet. So we're going to kick off our our old, good old-fashioned round table show here, the way we used to do things when we first started out. Um, so what were some of the ones that, that stood out to to you guys? So, uh, Mr. Ritz, I'm going to bring you in first. What, what's some of the ones that stood out to you? I mean, you, the students are ranking them one through five. If you want to rank them or pick a favorite, you go ahead. But, Ritz, what stood
2: out to you? Um, I guess I – Thinking of like Native American history, I guess like disease, war, and violence definitely kind of jumped out to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones I liked the most, I kind of liked toughness, hope to be better, better, um, and mystery over on the far right side of the tree there. Yeah. You um, know, I think about like the large amount of indentured servants that are coming over, um, and it seems like they're in a bad spot, but they're coming over still because being an indentured servant in the colonies oftentimes was much better than um, – dealing with the situation you had in, in, you know, mainland Europe anyways. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I kind of like the, the toughness, hope to be better and mystery would be my top three. Okay. What about you, Mr. Christman? Well,
1: I'll tell you, it's really kind of tough because I mean, one of the skills that we're trying to work on with our students is looking at bias and point of view. And it really, to me, depends on what your point of view is, right? As to what are the top five because as mr ritz said right i mean if we're looking from a native american perspective i can i can totally understand some of those things like disease but if i'm looking at it from you know someone who's looking to get away from the english church i'm certainly looking at toleration and freedom and religion and you know the the hope for a better place and a new start so i i don't know it, I, it's interesting it's an interesting list and i would say to mr ritz actually in the hallway before we kind of got started on this that 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 perspective really is important, and I think it would change. I think that list changes depending on the time period and context and the point of view of the individual, right? If you're a first generation immigrant, I think your list is going to be very different than someone whose family has been here for many, many years, um, as opposed to someone whose family who has served in the military or not, or has religious background or not? So I'm. I mean, I'm gonna. I sound like I'm weaseling my way out of the answer, but really, it's it, it's it's a great list, and I'm really impressed. i mean, I, I taught seventh grade for 15 years. I'm really impressed with the list that they came up with it because it's a very dynamic list. It really has a lot of a lot of great ideas, all of which are are relevant and acceptable, right? But um, what I thought was interesting was the idea that we're not identifying as much as far as ethnicity goes or as what country we're from goes. It's, it's more about those those adjectives than it is about the the actual people and where they're from.
0: Mm -hmm. So I'm going to kind of tell you, um, right now, Mr. Crispin's mentioned that because with the students, they were way more glued to the adjectives when they chose their top five than any of the ethnicities, like Mr. Crispin just said, um, the students definitely seem to be gravitating towards the action adjective. And I think part of that is of the sources we've gone through, they identify so much with stories and narratives. I've never, and in particular, we spent a lot of time in the middle passage, um, that leg of the triangular trade where you've got uh, African slaves being brought to the, the, the colonies. And, not just the American colonies. And the, the students were all surprised to learn that the vast majority of slaves went to the Caribbean or South America, particularly Brazil. They were shocked to learn that because they always kind of see slavery in the American context. Um, they were, you know, very surprised to, to learn that. So that was, you know, they immediately gravitated towards that narrative. So that's well, something what's, we certainly what's see interesting
1: here. about that too is, and, and people forget this, and, and I'm not trying to minimize um the the depth of slavery or how bad slavery was in the united states but as bad as slavery is in the united states it's even worse in in places in the caribbean and in certain places in brazil right so we we tend to think i think we tend to think simplistically that all slaves came to you know the 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 13 english colonies and everybody had the same experience Mm -hmm. Um, it's so different even the british colonies are different from location to location
0: yeah. And Spanish slavery is different. than uh, they, they were so glued to that um, diversity and how no one area of slavery was the same as, um, as another one. They also gravitated towards how the, 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 this middle passage version of slavery, because we did briefly mention the African slave trade with the Arabic countries and how the European slave trade fit right into those channels that were already open of the Arabic slave trade with, with the African continent. Um, And the Europeans slid in there, but how it was also different because this form of slavery was so tied to color and race um, and mixed in there with Christianity and how, you know, the students looked at, uh, I think we did like a TEDx video on it. And they looked at how um, even, you know, and like, take for instance, the American system, because it's the one we deal the most with, how since it was so tied to race, even when um, slavery ended the United States in 1865, um, even when that happened, you still had the mass amount of inequality because of the racial component of slavery. And we looked at how in the Roman system, slavery wasn't tied to race, and in other systems, it wasn't so. Um, so they were really into that into that narrative. Um, so what I wanted to do at this time is kind can of I, can I jump in? I, I got a in.
3: second to jump yeah. in on that. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're good. I was just I I think also the interesting fact about that and what makes because it was chattel slavery it was so racially motivated but also the fact that when it was over that group was still the minority in the nation right a lot of the caribbean places because the majority of slaves had gone to the caribbean areas a lot of those nations are now predominantly uh they're predominantly you know african in descent predominantly people of african descent and number 1 it's it's why their economy struggle so much because the the europeans you know left the caribbean uh after you know kind of after slavery was over for the most part um and so you you see kind of people being able to bring their own culture and and bring their own heritage into and interweave it with the fabric of the nation in the Caribbean places. So much so that I I teach in my global class all the time that the reason that, you know, African-American isn't necessarily an appropriate term for all black people in America anymore is because a lot of people in, in America are immigrants from Trinidad and Tobago or Jamaica or Turks and Caicos, right? Some of these places where they are predominantly black, right? And it's because of the large amount of slaves that went there, but now those cultures are interwoven. And I think that one of the biggest problems in this country has been that black people, even after slavery, former slaves and into today have been a minority and they've, the systems have been designed to keep them in a minority position. And so I don't feel like they they feel like their culture is as woven into their culture is as woven into our our fabric right as any anybody else's because they've been here arguably uh, a lot of black people in this nation can trace their heritage and their ancestry back to the to america and no further so they are actually original americans outside of the natives obviously right and anybody who's can trace their family back to 1619 or 1620 when when, uh, the, the settling started, but they're not getting, they don't get the recognition. They don't get that kind of acknowledgement that their culture is woven into the American fabric. And so that's where you kind of see that divide between Caribbean nations kind of coming to terms with and being able to, uh, acknowledge their African roots. Whereas in America, I think it tends to really get whitewashed and kind of left out of those discussions. Um, and so I, I do think that African slaves is, is an important one of those top five to be in, in, but not necessarily maybe for the negative connotation. Obviously it's a terrible, terrible thing. And we have to acknowledge that it happened. But I think to truly acknowledge the roots of America and American history we don't have the America that we have without African culture. I mean, it it is steeped in our culture now between, I mean, music, literature, uh, cultural um, rituals, right? Things that were naturally African have been brought to this country forcibly, yes, through African slavery, but in order to, to do justice and to really acknowledge their presence as, as a member, as members of, of this nation and being American, a lot of that is rooted in, in African culture, for sure.
0: Yeah. And, and one of the things that we talked about, um, thank you, Mr. Henry. One of the things we talked about in the class was that we looked at a graph and a breakdown of the colonies in 1775 of the ethnic makeup of the 13 colonies and what percentage of each. So right at the birth of the American Revolution, um, 48% of the colonists were English. The next largest ethnic group were African, of African descent. And the students were a little shocked by that because we've been examining in seventh grade, you know, what do we remember? How do we remember certain things? How do we look at things? And I'm happy Mr. Henry brought that up because I try to caution the students um, as we work through the Middle Passage and the horror and the terror of it and everything like that, and the horror and terror of slavery. We want to bring to the, the forefront pride and the, the interwoven fabric, as Mr. Henry put it, that um, these people have in our story and that they are part of it. And we kind of do it with native Americans too, as well. So I wanted to bring in kind of a, a common list that one of the students had that I thought I agreed a lot with. I'm not going to copy it exactly and say it's exactly how I agree. But what I tried to do with this student too, is I said, pick things that if you have to rank them, that you try to get more bang for your buck, where you feel like adjectives are rolled into it. So I'm gonna read their number one here, all right? And these were also very common rankings the students had. So this student had for number one, the biggest thing in our roots was economics and money. Agree, disagree, and thoughts. Chris. Man.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there's, uh, there's so much depth to that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the, the colonies are established. The colonies are established for economic reasons. Britain sinks a ton of money into establishing colonies, right? Right. It, and we
0: lumped in the Spanish ones too, and the French. Right, so yeah. It, so it yeah, does stretch farther 13, than 13. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Acquiring colonies is an expensive venture, no matter whether you're Spain, France, Britain, uh, the Netherlands, or whoever. It, th- that whole system of mercantilism, right, that we mm-hmm. that we cover in global and we cover in US, it is not it's not a system that you just go oh it sounds like a good idea right i mean you're you're sinking tons and tons of money and capital because you also have to then protect those investments right and so i mean uh, yeah economics i think really does play into the founding of the 13 colonies in a very large way and and i think too you can include slavery in that right because you know s- slaves you know if you're talking about chattel slavery's chattel for the students who don't know that's property right in the eyes of the law, slaves are property. So if you're property, then you are, have economic value, mm-hmm. which is why you know we talked at length when when I'm teaching slavery, which actually we're getting into next week with 11th grade. I uh, at least with antebellum slavery, right before the Civil War, that punishments for slaves rarely involve death, because it that's you're taking economic investment, and in, in, unless it's a a, a huge or a grievous you know. Uh, offense. You, you don't kill slaves. You need them to work. Mm-hmm. You, you've sunk money into them. Uh, my college class, we looked at 12 years a slave. Solomon Northrup was purchased for $1,000 in 1850, I believe it was 18, no, 1853 is when he published the book, 1840s at some point. And that's like $31,000 today, right? I mean, you, you don't just do that and just say, oh, I'm going to throw $31,000 away. Mm-hmm. So totally see the, the economic point of view on that. And, you know, you can tie into that, the fur trade. I mean, there's, there's so much that goes along with that. Um, so I will just, uh, I'll let somebody else jump in here.
0: Well, well, what I'm looking at is the list of sources we looked at that I listed that the students and I talked about. So, number one, like, the initial motivation for this whole colonization thing is to find trade routes, economic. Um, why are we even here in the first place, right? Columbus and the whole, it's all economic trade, right? Um, any of the sources we looked at, it's kind of lurking in the background. Uh, mercantilism you mentioned. Jamestown is founded by a company to turn a profit. Um, I'm currently reading, so you mentioned the slavery thing, I'm currently reading Marcus Rediker's The Slave Ship, which is just an absolutely brilliant work on the Middle Passage, in my opinion, the best. Um, And he talks about how this slavery, he goes, I always want you to think of dollar bills. I listened to him speak once. Dollar bills, think of the slave trade, economics. And so I think economics is definitely one of these things in our roots that it's tr- tied to so many other things. Um, he Redeker talks about the rise of global capitalism with the slave trade and how it's like, you know, really, the, really not just slavery. This whole thing is tied with the rise of global capitalism and the economic system that really drives the United States through much of its history rises in this period of expansion of, of European exploration, trade, and colonization.
2: Especially to you bring up
1: that global idea. I'm curious what Mr. Ritz has to say.
2: Yeah. I was just gonna say, especially when you think about like opportunity and like capitalism, I mean, I feel like early early America, like the gold standard is to be able to go there and get your own farm and set up that, you know, like uh, amber waves of grain, right? And like, uh, but it's not for everyone. And I, I also feel like uh, kind of to Mr. Hendricks' point, he was talking about, um, I believe, or maybe it was you, Mr. D that mentioned uh, religion kind of being tied in. I was uh, reflecting on, before you asked me to do this, uh, the class I took was like a, like a history of religion class, and it was brought up the Doctrine of Discovery in 1452, which is sort of like this um, religious incentive or reasoning even to like go out and explore areas. Um, and there's this YouTube video by the, a Native American fellow, Mark Charles, uh, called We the People. It's a TED Talk. It's sort of sarcastic, we the people, obviously. Um, and he mentions in it that in the Doctrine of Discovery, one of the quotes is, the pope uh pope nicholas v is saying go out invade capture vanquish um subdue pagans and reduce their persons to perpetual slavery convert them to his and their use of profit mm-hmm. um and that's that's published and put into uh the doctrine and then used by as sort of rationale for the ability to go out as europeans and colonize not only america but um go into Africa as well and and parts of the Caribbean, like you mentioned. Um, I mean, I do think that economics probably is the main, if not the main reason why, I mean, new Amsterdam is sort of sorted as a commercial venture and then uh, the Dutch are kicked out because someone else wants to have a new commercial venture. Um, So it is competitive capitalism with the, with the aim of economic gain really. So it sounds like we can kind of put this
0: as number one. And economics, this isn't good or, or bad. And we don't even like using those words as historians, but could probably stick that as number one. Um, the number two one here that I kind of agree with high up in the list is violence. Because you kind of wrap war up in that, I guess. What are your thoughts on having violence as possibly our number two, if if we're ranking them or if we're just talking, if, you know.
2: Mr. Ritz, you want to start
1: on that one?
2: Yeah, I mean <laughs> – I mean, it's undeniable. There's a lot of violence. Again, like Mr. Christmas saying, these are. I mean, that's a difficult to definitively say. Yes, violence is, you know, inherently the root of American civilization. But I mean, yeah, I guess it's there. That is a revolution. I mean, so um, and and obviously the wars with the Native Americans moving moving west and and also continuously pushing colonial governments to have more ability to continue to move West mm-hmm. um, especially as land is taken up by others. Yeah. We looked at
0: King Phillips uh, and the Pequot war in particular um, early on in, 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 the colonies, you know, cause that was our scope. And I, I just, I put violence because it didn't have to be necessarily native Americans and Europeans, even though that's, that's the one we looked at the most and is most prevalent. It's just that. Okay. And I'm just going to lump the next one in disease. Um, The thing that stood out to students and always to myself is the violent, short, often diseased lives these people led that came across the ocean, you know, and and whoever you were, if you were uh, a European or an African, or even um, an an indigenous person experiencing this, there was so much violence and disease around you at every turn. I mean, you know, we're talking estimation, some historians and scientists and other um, people much smarter than I estimate that you know, the disease was so rampant in native populations and you can read stories about it all over the place that you're talking reductions of what 80 to 90% of the population. I mean, if you look at the American revolution, well, that's going on in the interior with some of those native populations in like the Lakota and the middle of the country and up in Canada, they're going through a terrible smallpox epidemic while the American Revolution's going on, you know, and their populations being, um, reduced, you know, Jamestown, Look at the settlers at Jamestown and the experience they went through. The, the pilgrims, the, pur- the Puritans, Pilgrim separatists. Um, you can go through, I mean, just this violent, short, disease-filled life, I think is so at the colonial roots. Other thoughts?
1: All right, so I'm going to provide a different perspective on the whole violence. Thing All right. Because we tend, we tend to focus on the colonists and the Native Americans, but the thing that we lose focus on, right, is Native Americans are not vic- hapless victims, Right. Native Americans had been fighting each other for centuries before the English, the French, or even the Spanish arrived. I mean, the, Az- the Aztec were hated by their neighbors because, I mean, they, they conquered their neighbors, right? Why the Iroquois Confederacy uh, exists? Because they're banding together against common enemies. Um, so I, I think we need to be careful sometimes, and, and it's 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 a little tricky sometimes in middle school too, because God love middle schoolers, but they are very black and white, and they uh-huh. see things very clearly as right or wrong, left and right. And many times the world is is you know in gray overtones. Um, you know Native Americans have agency; they have control. They're not poor, hapless victims, and that's one of the things we talk about in my class, particularly of like the French and Indian War, where you know the the Iroquois Confederacy is trying to manipulate the British, just as much as the British are trying to manipulate the Iroquois Confederacy and the french are trying to manipulate you know how many native american tribes you know to join their side Mm -hmm. and vice versa so it's anytime you have organized civilization like that violence ensues because they want to expand they want to spread and anytime there's expansion and spread there's going to be conflict because you have something i want right when i think about the iroquois confederacy why the tuscarora end up in the confederacy because they're they're booted out of north what is present-day north carolina um, from their enemies so they're looking for a big big brother so to speak right so although I think violence is a part of it I don't necessarily see it as top of the list material because that's true of any group of folks who are looking to expand whether it's as small as a tribe or as big as a civilization like Rome right mm-hmm. um, but disease is certainly I, I, it's a, the leading forefront without without disease to take out those large numbers of Native Americans, right? Uh, and I know they covered that in global, right, with the Aztecs and the Incas. I mean, those are just powerhouses of civilizations that are really just decimated um, by diseases. And I'd love to know, you know, and I'm not good enough at science, but it seems to me that, that, that um, disease issue only tends to go one way, right? Why is it that there are no diseases in the new world that don't come back the other way that the Europeans are being devastated by? Or is that just happenstance,
0: right? Is that just luck? I, I think I could be totally wrong here, but I think did a lot of it have to do with the Europeans were around other types of livestock more? Well, like yeah. Pigs. There's only
1: The only livestock cattle. in the new world are llamas and alpacas. Right,
0: right. right. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 dra- the, dra- the draft, draft animals.
1: There's a trade between – Europe and Africa and Asia, so there's a lot more contact there. Mm-hmm. There is some contact between Native Americans and West Africa and you know some in the Pacific, but it's not it's not prolific, right? right. As it is with with European
0: trade. Right. Yeah. So I I think I would agree. I think I might flop disease and violence. I think disease disease has got to be up there because there's so and there's so much in, in, and. Yeah. Um, I would totally agree with that. We kind of can segue, I kind of want to segue into the Native American roots point, which is a little bit farther down my list. Now that they're right, ra- like I said, we could say they're ranked. We could say they're not ranked. We're just spitballing talking here. Um, the Native American roots that you kind of got into Mr. Crispin, we talked the, the unit before this, it paired well because we did the Iroquois. We really dove deep into the Iroquois peoples and diplomacy uh, cause it's local here in New York. And we looked at how the disease actually forced the Iroquois to be more diplomatic in their approach in the 16th and into the, um, well, more of the 17th and 18th centuries, because they couldn't, I mean, they were pushing into as far as Illinois with some of these wars for, to control fur trade or to extend their influence into the Ohio and all these places. But they, they started getting so overextended that they found that they had to use diplomacy as their main tool to war, to have an effect. Um, so I think that's, you know, cooperation was one of the words and the students actually specifically referenced the Iroquois diplomacy with the French and the British and other native peoples um, as well. So that's that's definitely a big picture. Uh, any other additions to the Native American roots that people want to mention?
2: Um, I was just thinking again about that video I was watching today. He brings up uh, an interesting point. So in, in 1823, um, There's a court case that goes to the Supreme Court, uh, Johnson versus McIntosh, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it's a disagreement between two guys. One has received a plot of land from a Native American tribe. and Another has received a plot from the government. Um, And they get into an argument, goes out to the Supreme Court, and it's ruled that the title of the land goes to who discovered the land. Um, which they then cite was obviously the government of the United States, and and it seems like in 1823 maybe you could make the argument that yes, it was the uh, just the nature of the times and whatnot. But um, the gentleman in the video I saw he he makes the point again. It's this court, this case is referenced again, and again it's a case that uses the doctrine of discovery with all this pretty nasty language about Native Americans. It's referenced again in uh 1954 1985 and as recently as 2005. So it I don't know to me it just kind of is talking again about how Mr. Henrd had mentioned like the systemic ideas that have continued and carried down a little bit um, especially not only involving uh black americans but also native americans certainly in 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 the roots and the fabric.
0: Yeah. And and again I again I love that Mr. Henrd had mentioned this earlier of the idea that you want to weave in that part of the story of the roots and the, the problems but there's also the other path of the pride um and that that is part of our story and the part of the the construction and the building of the nation right um yeah i love when we read we read the secession papers from texas in my 8th grade class and yeah there's a line in there and it says something to the effect of that the african had no agency in the establishment of this nation and i love to ask the students who actually, just as an example, who who literally constructed the White House? I mean, can you really say that the African race had no agency in the establishment of the nation? The wealth accumulated, the construction of these things. Um, you know, we want to be careful how we always, when we're dealing with race and ethnicity, how we talk about it. but. Just that it's just not true, <laughs> that you know that the African had no agency in the establishment of the nation.
1: Well, and we got to remember too that the South isn't the only beneficiary of of slavery in the no, South. No, yes. like, yeah. that, that cotton is going someplace. It's going to northern factories, and you know, and, and the West is benefiting as well. One of the one of here. the
3: biggest things that uh, that I took out of the sixteen nineteen project podcast when I when I dug down deep into it was how. Uh, the financial institutions in America were, were rooted, the most valuable asset in early American culture was the African slave. And so a lot of the financiers and a lot of the financial loans and things that were given out were, were loaned out against slaves as collateral. So literally some of the wealth of the nation or much of the wealth of the nation and the ability to loan money from banks is, is coming off of the back of the value of these African slaves. And mm-hmm. those banks are in the north, but they're benefiting from
1: right, the collateral Absolutely. that the south is providing. And Absolutely. then when you add up that collateral before the Civil War, you end up with the value of slaves being more, more valuable than all the factories in the north combined. combined. So it's, right. it's, like, it's, it's an insane system to, to think about and it's interesting to start when you start looking at those numbers and those
3: statistics it it really starts to play out well and then if that that makes it even just so much more clear the, the talk about so the civil war being over slavery right like when you put it into that that and you talk about the, just the literal wealth and value that the, the white wealthy. And again, I think another thing that gets tied up is we think that everybody in the South, right. Was a slave owner. Everybody in the South was, and, and the reality is there's much of the people fighting or many of the people fighting were, were poor white, farmers right who who had been fed this line right that they had to stand up for you know whatever it was states rights that whatever they're they're using that narrative but the reality is it's it's these wealthy wealthy slave holding plantation owners that do not want to lose that accumulation of wealth that they've built and and their their. they're, they're scared of it you know and it's it's not it hasn't really changed right in the terms of the people who are making the laws and sending people to war in modern day america are also usually the very wealthy elite whose families will never see a battlefield unless they choose to Mm -hmm. rich man's fight for the poor man's war always 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 so yeah. that was a good I needed to jump in on that one. That was a No, I'm happy we got you to to be the ability to, to check in and out here. <laughs> I'm participating in this other Zoom meeting too. So I'm I'm killing it on both ends right now.
2: Like
3: <laughs> you know, I'm gonna be completely spent after this. So don't ask me to do anything intellectual for at least like 35, maybe 45 minutes.
0: <laughs> I know you have a intellectual thermometer that I never try to tap out.
3: Yeah, limited capacity over here. Limited capacity. <laughs>
0: Um, yeah. So I, that, that, Yeah, and, and the next one on my list after disease was slavery. Um, and I think we've really covered that topic in depth uh, very well. And, and the last thing I'll, I'll leave it on um, is that those poor whites, in some cases, I feel like after the, after the Reconstruction era, in some cases, those poor whites in Southern small governments and towns actually banded together with African-Americans because they saw, they saw through this whole thing. And, but in other cases, they didn't. And so it is, it's fascinating how on, in the local level of America, these roots can be, it's hard to paint with broad brushstrokes, right? These things are from our roots can be so one way in one setting and so another way in another setting.
1: That's funny you say that because we were talking about that in my college class today. We were talking about the Civil War itself and about how not all Northerners were abolitionists and not all Southerners were pro-slavery and you know yeah. and vice versa it's, i mean it was yeah we gotta be very
3: careful of those overgeneralizations. sometimes
2: mm-hmm.
3: and i was also, just gonna say that 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 piqued my interest because honestly i would say that a, a lot of the places especially where the poor whites are are harboring a lot of that ill will, even still today i think it's it's almost more prevalent i don't want to say more prevalent because i don't obviously there's no data to to support that but you have the feeling that a lot of like rural like northeast and Midwest parts of the nation harbor uh, harbored a lot of that, especially as the as like the great you know the Great Migration and all of that kind of stuff kind of take place. Those industrial workers really feeling like they they were worried they were buying that narrative that they were going to lose their jobs to newly freed men and all of that kind of stuff. So it, the thing that always shocks me is like the modern day like the center of the Ku Klux Klan right is Indiana and Ohio, right. And Ohio. So you would think that like, you know, you're talking deep South, Mississippi, Texas, Alabama, no, Indiana and Ohio, the rust belt, yep. right? The rust belt. And that, that goes very, I think under the radar. And I think it goes back to, to Nick's point about you really saw a lot of like poor white, those indentured servants, right? People who had, who kind of knew the struggle, kind of banding together versus people in the North who, who were maybe feeling a little bit displaced. And that, that kind of brought up a whole, a whole different set of problems.
0: Yep. Rich, you want to get on that?
2: Yeah, I was just, I just did a project. I was talking with some students today about the silent Sam monument. And again, kind of that idea of how, like on the one hand, like you guys are talking about, you know, some of those soldiers who just got caught up in it and had no real say. And you know, the monument, they, they, them viewing that monument as a tribute to those who gave their life for you know, you know, what they felt at the time was a just cause. And then the black Americans living in the area who were talking about all this great economic gain and yet they see no, no part of that even after slavery has ended and the war is fought. And, um, and I was just, it was a good conversation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so I think we can all agree, slavery kind of the African narrative deserves to be up on that list. Um, last couple ones as we kind of close out here shortly The student wrote down this desire, and they kind of lumped freedom and a desire to be better um, into one. And they referenced things like the the pilgrim separatists, the Puritans, and the Quakers um, as this desire coming to it. And you can kind of put religion with this too, I think. Um, This desire to be a better version of yourself, the city on a shining hill. That you'll hear in a lot of Puritan literature and this desire to, to do better and be better is certainly at the, the center of this. Um, they, they referenced Bartolomé de las Casas' writings, calling out the Spanish treatment of Native peoples. Um, and the one thing that I always draw myself to is the first real, like, decent-sized anti-slavery abolition movement in the world that was beginning to take off uh, were Quakers in Pennsylvania. I believe it was in the Gordon. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty yeah, sure I re- I'm pretty sure I read it in the Gordon Wood um, American yeah. Revolution book. That you know the first ever people to say like we don't think this is right, and for it to really start to gain roots and take hold, um, it's so interesting that you know it, the, the Quakers, one of those groups that came over for this desire to be better and religious purpose, were the people starting to get the ball rolling to get rid of some of those things we were just talking about. So this desire to be better and to get things right is part of our roots. What do you guys think about that?
1: Well, I think so. I and, I and, you know, I'm I'm going to go back and talk a little bit about um you know, there's a movie out called Gettysburg from years ago and there's a, there's an Irish sergeant who's talking and he's yeah, you know, he's talking about, you know, I you know, in, in the old country, if my father was a blacksmith, I'm a blacksmith, right? Um but I'm out to prove I'm a better man, right? That you know, I I have control of my own destiny. And really, I think that's what's driving a lot of folks um, out of Europe, right, or at least out of Britain at that point, right, besides religion and and wanting to practice the religious beliefs because you have a series of English kings who are not, you know, they don't want to lose the the British subjects, but they don't want the Quakers and the separatists uh, nearby, but I still want them, you know, so I can tax them. Uh, you know, so, so they, they travel away, but I think there's also that idea too, that, you know, if I'm not the oldest son and I don't get the inheritance of land, like you would in Britain, then I, I go to the new world and I have the chance to prove I'm a better man. Right. So that, that just that, that idea of opportunity, I mean, we talk about, you know, the United States is a land of opportunity. Um, and, and, and those opportunities don't always present themselves equally to everybody. Um, but i do think that that is that is a part of the roots right of america what we're talking
0: about I agree ritz
2: yeah i agree too and i i just think about like the constant expansion and progression of the country i mean even after the colonies like always moving westward always seeking new opportunities for the increasing number of immigrants coming over um so i i mean i agree i do think that it could that could be the the fourth or fifth, whatever number it is, you know, mm. land of opportunity for sure yep
3: i definitely i definitely agree I've been musing and doing some writing and stuff on my my off time, and one of the biggest things that I'm really grappling with trying to put into words is the idea that you know the united states, america the colonies the american revolution it's it's an ideal i i don't know that we have ever accomplished the ideal that was set out by the founding fathers right we we have the documents in place and and there are these high lofting ideals and i think that idea of opportunity is the key everything within the ideals that make america america is that idea of opportunity mm-hmm. and that honestly might be the missing piece that i've been trying to figure out how to put together but the idea that all men and women are created equal, right? All humans are created equal. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in that endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And the idea that a people, we the people, uh, in order to form a more perfect union have come together uh, to do something that would allow us all to be the best version of ourselves mm-hmm. is such just this enamoring. I mean, I've been enamored with that. It's the reason why I'm in history. I've been enamored with that. I've been a, a lover of the American spirit for so, so long. And I honestly think it's one of the biggest things that we see rooted in the conflicts of today, right? The modern world, what is America? What does America represent? America is not a flag, it's not a star-spangled banner, it's none of that, right? It's this ideal of opportunity and greatness that every single human being strives for in their own personal life. And this is a group of people who came together and said, hey, we wanna create a country where that can happen, where every single person in the world, anybody could come and become a citizen here and have the idea of being able to achieve the best version of themselves. And, in, and until we embody that as a country, right, we're still working towards becoming that. So I think that there's always an opportunity to grow, there's always an opportunity to learn, and so I think opportunity is an amazing word to to use as a root of America because I, I really do think that that's what this is. It, it is the land of opportunity, and it's the land of opportunity because of those documents that we have that found us right in these utopian ideals of freedom and justice for all. And until we can accomplish that utopia, we should be working towards it.
0: Well, and a lot of people you're say ending
3: quest for perfection. You know, you're never going to reach
1: perfection, but that doesn't change the quest. Right? right. I mean, I've, right. I've talked about that with my student teachers every time I have them. Right? Is in teaching the quest is for for perfection. You know, you're never going to reach it, but that doesn't mean that you don't work hard every day to try and reach for that ideal. Anyone? Yeah, I I agree hundred percent.
0: Yeah, same here. And, and uh, like Mike, Mr. Christopher took the words right out of my mouth. You know, can we even reach those ideals we set out? Are they possible? Um, doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And Wood talks about that. I can't remember if it's the radicalism of the American Revolution or if it's the abridged version of the American Revolution, but he mentions how, despite not granting, ending slavery, you know, in the hypocrisy of all men are created equal, yet we have slavery, right? Um, and the Native American piece in the early America, you know, did the American Revolution really achieve any of those ideals? He He's very clear, though, that the words matter and the rhetoric and the feeling and the ideals of the time mattered. And without that, we wouldn't have achieved a lot. Everybody that came later got to point back to that stuff and say, wait a second. I read somewhere that it says all men are created equal." I read somewhere. We laid out those ideals and without that base, you know, we couldn't have done a lot of the things later on. The abolitionists could point back to that. I love Frederick Douglass speech on, what does the 4th of July mean to a slave? You know, he says things like, I don't doubt the ideals of the, of the founding fathers, but why am I here making the speech? You know, what does this mean to me? I encourage everybody to read that. And he says, um, they were brave men. the ideals he set up have made my quest possible, you know, and things like that. And it's, there's a lot of power. So I'm happy we came to talk about yeah, this. Yeah, Mr. Moore,
3: I gotta say, I mean, that, that was one thing, that would idea of, yeah, because I've always struggled. You and I have talked about a lot about, yeah. I struggle with, I've always had the founding fathers on a pedestal, right? I put them as these like godlike figures. And and one thing that my, like recent things have made me do is not to drop them down or say that they're terrible human beings, but to acknowledge that they're fully human yeah. with, with flaws as all humans have. But to understand that the country that we live in the ideals that we have even the freedoms that do exist even though they might not be equal and we still have work to do and like we're always striving for perfection and we're always striving to achieve that liberty and justice for all idea we wouldn't have the progress and i would make the argument that the world wouldn't have the progress that it does because in global we talk about all the time you know the american revolution is the first Right. It's that idea that like, okay, we've done all these things with the enlightenment. We have all these grandiose plans. Who's going to really, you know, have the, the gumption to put rubber to the road. Yeah. And um, the Americans were, got, you know, the British colonists, the american revolution and the idea of we're going to fight for these ideas of liberty and justice for all started that ball rolling and it's yeah. still rolling and it's still it's still improving and it's con- but without those ideals without that document without the declaration of independence without the the constitution of the united states does it go to france does it go to the caribbean does it spread through europe i was going to say haiti the
0: haitian revolution is fascinating Absolutely. to
3: me 100% yes. yeah like those people are, they're in in engulfed or, or empowered by watching what these little colonies did. And and you cannot, regardless of our, our ills and our, our sins, you cannot take away that that progress and the progress that we've made to this day, not that it wouldn't have happened, mm-hmm. but would have happened when it did if it wasn't for the United States of America.
0: And what's crazy is the Americans and the colonists of that time another gordon wood thing i know i keep talking about him he says like they realized it like there was a consciousness of that like they really felt it like whether or not they were going to realize it and stuff like that they they certainly felt and believed it and it's rare in history when you can see like people realize they're in a turning point
1: if we but like we to we use a remember too we can't look at those documents like the declaration of independence the Constitution, those through the lens of people living in 2020 the world they're living in is completely different. And what makes the American Revolution radical are the changes that they're making, which are radical for the time period. And there are certain steps that they were too far for for even as radical of a movement as it was, right? And, and some of those issues included, you know, in certain states, women's rights and, you know, getting rid of slavery. And But it's that step, it's that forward progress, right? And that's that to me has always been the brilliance of it is they're laying the groundwork, the foundation for other things, and they allow for that flexibility for the change, right? But at the same time, they're able to make that change themselves.
3: Yeah. And, I was and, just gonna say that. I mean, without without that, right? Without those documents, those things don't happen. Right. So yes, although they didn't happen in 17, you know, 79 or 1781, 1783, right? All of that, they happened because the groundwork was there to ultimately happen because let me tell you that if that didn't happen and they were still in you know the monarchial format right that it was nobody's got rights right unless you're nobility and even then they're limited so unless you're the king you don't really have a lot of rights so without those things i think that's a super important point that none of that other stuff happens and that was another thing that i really learned out of the the 1619 project is that a lot of fights for civil rights they're not when one group is fighting for civil rights, it's going to benefit every single group that doesn't have their full civil rights. So just in general, fighting for freedom and establishing a nation based on rights and laws and a constitution allows for every other group to fight for that same thing after the fact.
0: Right. And, and I like how we've in this conversation, as we bring it to the last thing I want to talk about, I like in this conversation how You know, too often, I feel like when we have this conversation of roots, it's either one or the other, like the roots are either poisonous and bad, or they're all glory and nobody does anything wrong. Um, You know, in the first half of our conversation, we were pretty critical of a lot of our roots. And now we've come around to kind of, well, let's, let's pull out of that idea of better and opportunity and and things like that of the roots, because they're both there. It's neither one or the other. It's, it's, it's all there. You know, this, when we, when we read like the story of, um, not the story, but the the history on King Philip's war, right? that that medicom is is drawn and quartered and is you know uh it's just how do you reckon with evil in these sources you know you read this stuff from bartolome de las Casas, you read that stuff how do you look at that and go oh my gosh that is just pure evil in history no matter what time period it's in you know or you read something from columbus but then we've now come around to you know this these other ideals that are a little more um palatable (laughs) you know, a little less sad and because it is there, it is, it's all part of there. It's all part of those roots. So the last thing I want to talk about, um, and this one, there's bias here. Mr. Chris, I've talked about this bias here on my part, I really feel like our Spanish roots get left behind. I mean, the first permanent settlement in what would become America is 1565 St. Augustine, Florida. And it's not close. We all look, we all look, we have English roots, right? We get it. 13 colonies. we get it. Um, but, you know, 1565 to 1607 for Jamestown, that's a big gap of time. And, you know, we do not give enough credit to our Spanish roots and our Spanish kind of founding, right? So other thoughts on that?
2: I don't, I don't have a ton to say on that, to be honest. I mean, I, I think especially too, like, even just like the Spanish influence in South America and then seeing like the massive – I mean, currently, like the immigration numbers coming up from Mexico, which obviously also have Spanish roots, um, mm-hmm. you know, and like the Southwest is pretty much made up. I mean, they're the, the immigration numbers from Mexico in the Southwest are through the roof for, you know, decades. So I think to ignore it is is wrong. And also kind of to your last point about like, you know, how we're moving forward. And yes, we are the land of opportunity, but how can we get there? I think in order for us to get there, we really need to have we need to find a way to have a common history to have like a shared memory of what what our country is and to and to be able to do that we have to look critically at like all the negative things that we've been through and and also find ways to incorporate all the different cultures spanish english native american um african-american into that and it'll you know hopefully continue to progress and and see opportunity yeah mr Crispin.
1: So years ago, I read uh, Tony Horowitz's book uh, called A Voyage Long and Dark. It really changed my, the, my thinking about this whole t- way we t- teach uh, the exploration time period, right? So, you know, again, I taught seventh grade for a number of years. We, I always taught it, you know, east to, east to west, exploration, right? And Tony Horowitz is like, we, we teach it all wrong. It's west to east. You know, the Spanish come in first. They come up through Mexico, they come into what's present-day Southwest United States and settle California, and then start moving eastward, right, with, you know, Hernando de Soto ends up over by the Mississippi River, and you end up, you know, with Ponce de Leon over in Florida. And then the the French kind of explore the middle part of of North America through the Mississippi River Valley, you know, the St. Lawrence. And then it's like the British are the Johnny-come-latelys. They're like, you know, they get the scraps and the leftovers, which is up in Hudson Bay and then along the coast. But... They kind of take over what the spanish didn't want and what the what the the dutch had left over and let's be honest jamestown was a hot mess along with (laughs) roanoke anyway so you know but the british end up being the the victors in all of that um after the french and indian war but i just thought that was such an interesting way to look at things you know that that we do teach it wrong it is more west to east and is that our east coast bias Mm-hmm. that comes out in our yeah, teaching right is that because we live in new york and, and we tend to view things from this side of the world um you know it's it's like when we talk about the erie canal i talk to my students about you know you guys learn about the erie canal so much california i barely I'm, I'm willing to bet they barely talk about it just like we talk about the gold rush for maybe five minutes and then we move on and in california that's going to be an integral part of you know a history of california especially san francisco right same thing with texas i mean holy cow i I, my wife taught in texas and i know they teach texan revolution you know almost every year right in texas (laughs) whereas our kids are lucky to know if they know that the alamo is not about uh, americans fighting mexicans it's folks from tejas technically which will later become texas right that texas is fighting its own independent or fighting for its own independence so I just, I always think it's interesting to kind of reframe those things and sometimes toss out their students to see what they say.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I got to get that Horowitz book because ever since you told me about it, I, I just, well, cause I went to St. Augustine a couple of years ago Yeah, yeah went the Castillo de San Marcos um, and, and just oldest post in North. Uh, its just fascinating to me. And of course, you know, being in a imp- former employee of old Fort Niagara, I'm checking all their stuff and be like, all right, what do we stack up here? You know <laughs> um, that kind of thing. So, uh final thoughts kind of as, as we as we kind of go out here. We've we've gone through, you know, economics, money, trade, kind of greed. We didn't really I guess, call greed in that first one. Violence, disease, slavery, the desire to be better, freedom, opportunity, religion, Spanish roots. Um, you know, I think we kind of covered everything. Do we think we've missed anything? I think maybe we probably t- missed a bunch of stuff,
2: but again to my right. point, I mean, even at the end there. That The two the examples you're giving of the people in California talking about the Gold Rush and the Texas Revolution. I mean, I'm talking about finding a shared history, but I don't even know if that's possible, really. You know, I mean, obviously our ideals that Matt's talking about, that should be like what we center our, you know, that's what we all share. But everyone experiences such drastically different things living in such a big country, too.
3: But you have-
2: um, such different histories all over the place. So. Well, it's
3: one of the biggest reasons why, honestly, the the Constitution isn't designed to have a giant federal government, right? We're we're supposed to be a regional state. The power is supposed to be in the regions, the states, and the localities because we do have such a a vast, diverse nation. And it's also one of the reasons why federal legislation is so difficult. Look at, I mean, right now, we, we can't get federal legislation passed, right, during a pandemic because we have so many different views that are combat like competing with each other and and i think that that idea of of a large really the only thing that does hold us together is those ideals right that we all cling to because regionally speaking is very very different we have different accents we have different food we have different cultures right, right. i've lived on both coasts and in Texas. And it is a very different experience in all three places. The cuisine is different. The the Even the language is different, right? Slang mm-hmm. is different. Everything is so diverse in this country. And what holds us together are those really powerful ideals of America. And I, and I guess I could say to acknowledge something that I don't necessarily agree with, maybe that's why people have such a, an affirmation to a flag or a national anthem because they do view it as those are the few things that do link us together but to me it's more that i the ideal of like what america represents that brings us together not necessarily any any physical attribute so i think as a final thought
0: we've got some complicated roots we've certainly got some complicated roots <laughs>
1: Yeah, i just want to i don't want to give credit to the seventh graders who put who put this together yeah um this is what real his this is what real historians do right the really deep thinking i i've been impressed i i was impressed with the list when i saw it and the more we talk about it the more impressed i am with the work that they did um they should be proud of the work that they did because they're right in so many ways um and we've only um we've been talking for a while here and we've only kind of scratched the surface so Kudos to the seventh graders for really kind of laying the groundwork for a great discussion uh, amongst us. And I hope that gets discussion going amongst them and themselves. Right. And to really think about some of these issues, because there's, there's nothing here that's right or wrong. Um, you know, following from our, our English folks, right. That claim evidence idea. That's all, that's all this is. So, um, again, as somebody who taught seventh grade, I'm really impressed with that.
0: Yeah. It was a great time to, to kind of do this and, and to work through it. Uh, I want to thank you guys for for, tune, for coming on in and talking about this. And, you know, um, don't forget to follow us at History Holly on Twitter. Um, you can email us questions at hollyhistory65 at gmail.com. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about them, debate, discuss the questions. We're available on Apple, iTunes, Spotify now, and SoundCloud. Three formats you can access the material. Uh, we're going to keep those shorts coming at you. We've almost got all of U.S. – one and two come together. Full 20, 30-minute episodes. You can review the entire of U.S. history. very happy that project is just about done. Took up almost the over a year now, right? Almost, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good Regents Prep review and AP. And AP review, too. Global so, be next. Global's yeah. next. <laughs> yeah, Rich is like, man, get off my back.
3: <laughs> hey, uh, thanks for having me. Sorry I was in and out, but I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to... You know, still still contribute even though I've uh, left the classroom.
0: Yeah, no problem. Can't we appreciate you, you out. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Thank you. Holly History signing off. Thanks for listening.